In the mountains of Michoacan, Mexico, a band of determined indigenous women led the overthrow of a criminal cartel. Their victory revived the town's traditional livelihood and ushered in a model form of self-government. Craftsmanship Quarterly presents When Indigenous Women Win by Andrew Sullivan. The call to Catholic Mass at Templo del Calvario has sounded at 6.30 every morning for as long as anyone could remember. But this morning was different. On April 15, 2011, the church bells tolled before the sun had even come up. Throughout the town of Chiran, a small indigenous community in the mountains of Michoacan, Mexico, people awoke with a start. Some ran to the church, Others peered from behind curtains, keeping their lights off to stay hidden in the dark. Those who lived near Templo del Calvario, where the street jogged left then right, saw piles of stones and a pickup truck laden with freshly cut pine trees trapped at a blockade. Six local women stood nearby to confront the two loggers in the truck. At first, the men shouted at the women with threats and insults, when that didn't scare the women off, the loggers climbed out of the truck's cab. The women immediately sprung at them, binding their arms behind their back with rebosos, the traditional shawls that indigenous women wear. They then marched the men into the nearby churchyard, where fifteen-foot-high walls and a locked gate would prevent escape. A revolt now known as the Movement had begun, and it would change life in Chiran for years to come. At the time of this uprising, more than half of Chiran's 23,000 citizens, who are members of the Puerepecha tribe, had been living in poverty. Their ancestors populated this mountainous area, which sits 7,800 feet above sea level in the trans-Mexican volcanic belt as early as the 13th century. Visitors to the area often hear that the Puerepecha, who were called Tarascans by the Spanish during the colonial era, were never conquered by the Aztecs. We have never let anyone into our territory, and we have always been united, says Nieves Guerrero Geronimo, Chiran's president of community affairs. Chiran always stands up because we are strong. The value of glue. Then again, strength in today's world is a relative term. Half of Chiran's adult population has migrated to the United States to find work. The money they send home forms the largest segment of income for the local economy. Most of the community's other income is generated by a simple craft that goes back to pre-Hispanic times, gathering resin from the pine trees that have long been native to this area, then selling it for use in a wide variety of products. Today, those products skew heavily to the industrial, chewing gum, tape and other adhesives, paint, solvents, inks, waterproofing applications, binders and cement, solders and fluxes, detergents, synthetic rubber, insulation for electronics, and road markings. Gathering the raw material for these products is not glamorous work, but it provides a good bit of the glue, quite literally, that has kept the local economy together. That economy faced a series of threats for five years, between 2007 and 2011, 
there were tit-for-tat killings of rival politicians and disappearances of some of those leaders' relatives. At one point, the townspeople refused to recognize a new mayor, accusing his backers, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, of stealing the office. Meanwhile, Michoacan was sending more immigrants to the United States than any other state in Mexico. For those who remained, the threat of being killed or kidnapped by the cartel kept many from venturing into the woods. By 2011, only about 50 men went out to tap the community's pine trees for resin. The first people who came in to fill this void were one of Michoacan's infamous criminal cartels, La Familia Michoacan. For a few years, the cartel essentially controlled Chiran's streets, offering payoffs or death to police officers who they wanted to look the other way as their logging trucks passed through. Citizens pled with local and state officials to stop the corruption, but no one took any action. Then, in 2010, La Familia Michoacan began terrorizing the community. Masked men wielding assault rifles bullied townspeople and took whatever they wanted from store shelves and market stalls. They stalked the streets and brandished their weapons as they rode in logging trucks heading into the forests. They extorted mom and pop businesses in exchange for protection. How could they extort people living in poverty, says Federico Hernandez, general manager of Pinosa, a pine resin refinery that's based in Moreria, the state capital, and that purchases resin from Chiran. Cartel members also kidnapped young women. We all had to be watching this without the power to do anything, says Oscar Villa-Ortiz, the elected leader of the town's collective sawmill. The people lived in fear. They didn't know if they might get kidnapped and taken away to be tortured or killed. Green Gold The cartel's next step was to essentially strip mine Turan's hillsides. Seeing more immediate profit in selling the pine trees for lumber instead of cultivating them for resin, the cartel embarked on a timber cutting spree that deforested much of the landscape. When the trees were gone, the cartel hatched what seemed like a brilliant way to use the empty ground, plant miles of avocado groves. The only problem is that Chiran's forests are not the best place to grow avocados. According to a 2017 report from the USDA Foreign Agricultural Service, Michoacan has become the world's largest avocado supplier, accounting for four of every five avocados eaten in the U.S. Michoacan's cartels were already battling over territory and drug trafficking routes through the state, and intimidating much of the population. The cartels held records from the Mexican Secretariat of Agriculture that showed them what percentage of avocado farmers' income to extort as they looked to diversify their sources of revenue. If growers refused to pay, the cartels' henchmen weren't subtle in how they showed their displeasure. They cut down swaths of avocado trees and kidnapped family members. Enter the Mexican Army. Tiran's homes and businesses survive by getting water piped from fresh water springs in the hills above town. Throughout those hillsides, 
Acres of oak and pine prevent erosion, reduce sediment in the water, and filter pollutants before they reach the water supply. The Puerepecha also harvest wild mushrooms and plants for traditional foods and medicines. The forest provides water, clean air, and a way of life, says Letizia Enriquez, a Chiran native. For about a year before the resistance movement began, illegal loggers took thousands of trees out of Chiran. Estimates range from 150 truckloads a day to as high as 500. According to one study conducted by a local university in 2016, two-thirds of Chiran's 31,450 acres of forest were destroyed between 2006 and 2012. David Romero, manager of the town's communal resin refinery, told me that when he and some associates walked into the forests to investigate the damage, they were driven away by gunfire. When the loggers began cutting down trees near the town's freshwater springs, the community decided it had seen enough. The town had already feared losing its water supply if the loggers developed avocado orchards, since avocados need 11 times more water than the native pine forest does. Now it was clear that logging near the springs would pollute whatever drinking water was left. On that April morning in 2011, after the six women brought their first captives to the churchyard, several hundred townspeople gathered to confront their tormentors. They carried broomsticks, baseball bats, stones, and fireworks. As more armed loggers arrived around 9.30 a.m., the crowd threw rocks and shot fireworks at them. To free their captured compatriots, the loggers fired at the crowd, wounding two people. The townspeople even captured police officials, and the town's mayor at the time, Roberto Bautista Chapina, because these officials had been trying to protect the armed convoy. There could have been a massacre, but the cartel's loggers eventually retreated. Using one of the logging trucks as a battering ram, the citizens stormed the town hall. In a 2013 interview with Al Jazeera America, a Chiran elementary school teacher, Trinidad Ramirez, said the crowd practically chased off everyone who was there. The citizens even took the police officers' guns, which included M16s and AK-47 assault rifles. This was a sweet victory, because only a few years earlier, government officials had taken the townspeople's guns away. That night, about 200 bonfires were lit at intersections throughout the town, where volunteers stood vigilant against the threat of an assault. The fires, called fogatas, continued to be lit night after night. Despite the fiery message of resistance, over the next month elements of the cartel repeatedly struck back. After one attack on the fogatas, in which two citizens were killed and another two were wounded, 70 Mexican soldiers arrived to restore order. The soldiers also found a meth lab, which they destroyed, along with more than 1,000 pounds of methamphetamine that were hidden in the forest. In November 2011, the town sued for autonomy, using a provision in Mexican law that evolved from the 16th century, Laws of the Indies. Interestingly, 
Those laws were created by the Mexicans' original conquerors, the Spanish, in an effort to protect Mexico's indigenous people. Despite opposition from the Michoacan state government, in 2014, Mexico's Supreme Court ruled in Chiran's favor, giving the town authority to rule itself without interference from state or federal authorities. To this day, at least once a month, 40 fogatas, which have become a symbol of Chiran's independence, burn into the early hours at various spots around town. People now gather at these bonfires to discuss the issues they want to bring up to their representatives, who have been chosen in each neighborhood by popular election. In one of the decisions made through their newfound power, Chiran's citizens decided to collaborate with a new business venture called Ejido Verde. The project's mission is to replant deforested areas, revitalize Michoacan's pine resin industry, and improve the lives of indigenous people working in and around the forests. The Value of Long-Term Planning Sean Paul, the American CEO of Ejido Verde, describes the venture as a forest company that leaves the trees standing. Based out of Michoacan's capital city of Morelia, Ejido Verde now has partnerships and loan agreements in Chiran and 10 other Michoacan communities. In 2018, the project nearly doubled the amount of land it manages and planted 2.2 million trees. Despite the rapid growth, Paul is trying to develop the business with an eye to indigenous values. We know that things that worked in the past aren't necessarily going to work in the future, he told me during my visit. How do we take from nature and how do we give back? That is something embedded in traditional cultures. Paul firmly believes the relationships that Ejido Verde is developing will lead to a multiplicity of benefits. They can bring thousands of people out of poverty, nurture an indigenous culture, improve damaged ecosystems, positively affect climate change, and earn a profit. By his calculations, if the enterprise meets its goal to deforest 12,000 hectares, nearly 30,000 acres, an area the size of two Manhattans, with resin-producing pine trees, more than one billion will enter the local economies over the next 30 years, and up to two billion in the next 70 years. He says he's already heard from more communities than Ejido Verde can accommodate to see if the endeavor can be brought to their lands as well. Funded by a combination of industry investors who are seeking a stable supply of raw materials, subsidies from the Mexican government, and some crowdfunding, Ejido Verde gives out solidarity loans at 0% interest to the communities that can help build these relationships. Keeper, paragraph 23, part 2, take 1. Roll on. The loans, which carry up to 20-year terms, will be paid back with revenue from resin harvests once the trees are mature enough to be tapped. As of this writing, Paul says that the enterprise has already raised $10.3 million, but its goal is $35 million. According to his latest tally, 7,000 people from 66 countries have already supported Ejido Verde with loans of at least $25. In Paul's view, 
Ejido Verde is an ideal vehicle to fight the cancer of short-term thinking. My business plan is for three generations, he says. And clearly, when we're growing a tree, we wait 10 years to see the resin. That's pretty long-term. That said, Paul realizes there are always risks in long-term planning. Community leadership could change and decide to use their land in a different way. On a pure financial basis, we're not going to compete with avocados, Paul says. What wins them over? Clean water, air, a better future for their children. The Horse and the Pine Tree When I visited the community tree nursery in Chiran, about 200,000 smooth-bark Mexican pine seedlings sprouted from seeds collected locally were growing until they can be transplanted into damaged forests. As I walk through the nursery, Maria Juarez Gonzalez, a Puerto Pecho woman and native of Chiran, sits under a few trees across the dirt driveway from the nursery, putting young trees about six inches tall into soil-filled plastic sleeves. Crews hired by the community travel into the deforested tracks with truckloads of these saplings. Paul says that since 2009, approximately 3,100 hectares, 7,660 acres, have been planted with new pines. At one point, two powerful, muddy pickup trucks with knobby tires roar into the nursery's driveway. A dozen masked men leap from the truck beds, assault rifles slung over their backs. They are forest guards, Chiran citizens with paramilitary training dedicated to protecting the town and its natural resources. Armed checkpoints are now stationed at each entrance of the town. Heavily armed and uniformed personnel question drivers of every vehicle that enters and leaves Chiran. After learning about the Ejido Verde initiative, Sergio Sanchez, a former construction worker, decided to begin working his ten acres of Chiran forest. Portions of his land had been deforested by illegal logging before the uprising, but he now felt safe to work alone in the forest. He also saw a chance to rehabilitate his land, be his own boss, and work with his animals. A horse is an invaluable partner to resin collectors. To gather resin, the collectors ride an hour from town into the hills, and the horses can navigate rugged terrain and washed-out paths that could stymie an expensive vehicle. They also don't damage an ecosystem in the manner caused by motorized vehicles and the roads they require. With each trip into the pines, Sanchez's horse will carry back two five-gallon buckets of resin, which he can then sell for 1,550 pesos, about $90, depending on the current market price. Another Chiran native, Miguel Macias, stands to do even better. After living in Kentucky for 20 years, Macias, 61, returned to Chiran earlier this year to work with his son on their 54 acres, where about 25,000 pines grow. Resin from that amount of forest can produce nearly 1 million pesos, about $55,000 per year, a significant income in Michoacan, where the average salary is about 285 pesos, $15 per day, or less than $5,000 a year. In 2018 alone, 
Paul estimates Ejido Verde has created 750 new jobs and about 150 in Chiran. Chiran's communal refinery stands 100 yards away from the nursery on a slight rise. The day I visited, a horse grazed near the loading dock. Billows of steam carried the scent of pine as Ruben Mondragon blasted hot water out of a high pressure hose to clean the 25 gallon drums used to transport resin. The refining process creates turpentine and rosin, which are then sold to manufacturers of dozens of derivative products. Before the uprising, when only 50 men worked to collect pine resin, The refinery processed only about 15 tons a month, says Romero, the refinery manager. Now, 600 people are out tapping trees, and he's processing 15 tons a week. You take care of a pine, Romero says, and it will pay you back. When Indigenous Women Win was written by Andrew Sullivan. A photographer who has worked for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and for years was based in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. The story was read by Garen Norquist, an actor and student in the Master of Fine Arts program at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater. This story originally appeared in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net.